Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. This week, we're going to speak with Jared Holt. He's a researcher, studies extremism and disinformation and all of that. And then we're going to be joined by Parker Malloy to complain about the legacy media as we are wont to do. Um, I should have said welcome to our 189th and final episode of We've Got Issues. Been a pretty good run. Uh, four years, I think, we've been doing this. And uh, I want to thank all of you because we couldn't do it without you. You know, I'll probably have, uh, I'll probably be relaunching an, another podcast. I don't, I've never really loved the name We've Got Issues, so I'll probably change the name. I know now, this is a, a statistic you may be aware of, 74% of Americans now have a podcast, but I've been doing this for a long time. I started in 20, I think 2010 uh, with a, it was called the Alternate Radio Hour. We did that for a few years, and then I did politics and reality radio. That was actually on terrestrial radio as well as a podcast, and I did that for a few years, and now we've been doing this for four years, and I'm looking forward to a little break and then probably going to relaunch a new show. Hopefully, you guys will come with me. Um, again, I want to thank all of you for uh, for supporting the show over the years. I want to thank shout out to Sarah Ray, our 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 number one fan, the person who I know loves the show more than any other. Um, yeah, and we're going to get on with the show. Stay tuned. We'll take a quick break and then be right back with Jared Holt. There's dancing behind movie scenes, behind the movie scenes. Sagirani, she's the one that keeps the dream alive from the morning past the evening to the end. And we are back. I'm still Joshua Holland, and I'm joined now by Jared Holt. Jared is a senior researcher who studies domestic extremism for the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. Jared, welcome back to We've Got Issues. Yeah, it's good to be back. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Um, studying disinformation is obviously central to your work. Uh, since gaining control of the House of Representatives, Republicans led by Ohio Representative Jim Jordan, the kind of combative Trump ally who chairs the Judiciary Committee, have been targeting people like yourself, researchers who uh, study this stuff um, as part of their rather ludicrous narrative that the government has been weaponized to suppress conservative speech. Can you just tell us a little bit about what is going on here and how this is being uh, manifested? Yeah, so what's happening now is that members of the government, whether it's Jim Jordan uh, or you know a host of other, you know, primarily Republican figures, have taken aim at organizations like the ones that I work for. Um, you know, essentially claiming that the study of disinformation or online harms and extremism. Uh, is being utilized by the government to advance some sort of nefarious censorship agenda, uh, which couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, you know, given how long we've been doing this, uh, you know, even if you did believe that, I, it would be hard for me to think that 
you wouldn't think the government's doing a pretty bad job of it, given the state. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the government um, is trying to suppress disinformation. They are failing wildly. <laughs> yeah, but, the, you know, like the, this kind of conversation that's been happening on the right side of the political aisle regarding this kind of work has really been developing uh, since this kind of work gained more mainstream uh, visibility. Um, the Washington Post reported that some researchers are being cautioned by the organizations that they work for to be more circumspect in their uh, public communications. To what degree is this kind of campaign having a chilling effect on people in your field? What are you seeing in those terms? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, and I'll, I'll say it with a caveat that, you know, I don't want to get too specific because that is exactly what is happening. Um, you know, the organizations like the one I work for, and I've certainly heard it from many other, uh, you know, what we would consider peers in our field, uh, is this sort of abundance of caution, knowing that there are efforts to FOIA different, you know, elected officials' offices or public offices that you may want to, you know, give a heads up to or warn about harms that are incoming, uh, just in abundance of caution in the way that as institutions, you're publicly communicating your findings um, and, and reacting to criticism of those findings when it comes in, whether valid or, or from disingenuous actors. Uh, so it kind of has had an effect, and I think it has caused, uh, it, well, I'll say, you know, different institutions have had different reactions to it. Some are certainly sure. a, a bit more on the offense here. Uh, but a lot of organizations, just given how you know precarious this work it, it is and sort of how, how funding works and all of that sort of thing, uh, have been a bit more guarded. And I think maybe haven't, you know, been as aggressive as the moment calls for right now, if I'm being... Yeah you know, completely honest, just speaking from my own opinion. Um, and, and it's, I, I don't know, it's a shame. It's, you know, you want to think that like this kind of work is bringing truth against that power. But I think there's kind of a realization in the field that there's a awful whole lot of power uh, that is taking a negative interest in this kind of work right now. Yeah. So, I mean, it, that's the desired effect of this. And it's reminiscent to me of um, Republican claims that efforts by law enforcement to study and mitigate political violence by white supremacists, other right wing extremists is a plot to silence conservatives. That's something that we've seen repeatedly over the last year since DHS put out a report. I got a lot. Of I attention. mean, they they said it, not me. Yeah, yeah no, no. I, and and. So the, and that while that has always struck me as a confession of sorts, in the sense that they are uh, to some degree, you know, aligned with those groups, that the line between mainstream and fringe has become blurred. And it is the case that speaking of, of violence, uh, extremist violence, objectively speaking, according to the data, it's a much more serious problem on the far right than on the far left. So my question is, to what degree disinformation is a bigger problem on the right than the left because we know that there is also disinformation, you know, there's different disinformation across the political spectrum. That's a reality. 
sorry, can you repeat the question? <laughs> I am famous for my rambling questions. Yeah. So uh, to what degree is disinformation a bigger problem on the right than the left, according to the data? Yeah. So, you know, generally speaking, we see, you know, narratives promoting disinformation, misinformation, uh, are able to gain a lot more traction, a lot more quickly on the right wing of the political spectrum. Um, I, I think a good example of this is the attempts to, you know, essentially provide a revisionist history of what happened on January 6th, um, right. you know, being an event I think most people have a good awareness of. Um, you know, on the right, there's been all kinds of efforts to recast what happened there as, you know, a, a less severe thing than what it was, and, a, a, you know, something that was ultimately less symbolic than uh, it will be remembered in history. And, you know, on the left, there's certainly all kinds of, you know, crazy claims that have been made about January 6th that, you know, all sorts of people were responsible, that, you know, really when it comes down to it, maybe played some ancillary part in a bigger picture, but like aren't to blame individually, uh, you know, for uh, capital riots, somebody like Mike Flynn, for example. Um, and, it, you know, the difference here is that you have like Kevin McCarthy uh, opening up archives of footage to January 6th revisionists, uh, but it's not like you have, uh, you know, trying to think of someone of similar stature, like uh, Nancy Pelosi. It's not like she is actively egging on, uh, you know, some of the wackier conspiracy theories on the left. Um, so, you know, generally speaking, we see that while there certainly is misinformation, disinformation across the political spectrum, um, on the right side of the political spectrum at this moment in history, uh, that kind of information is finding a lot more success achieving mainstream traction, uh, not just among you know, partisan media, but also among uh, elected officials on the rightward side of the aisle um, who are then you know, shaping uh, agenda items or their own public communications around that kind of information, uh, which you know, I don't care who you are or what party you're in, I think it's just bad governance. Um, and I just, I would point out that um, there was a study by researchers at, the, at Ohio State University, sorry, uh, that showed conservatives are more likely to engage with and believe false stories that they see online. Um, another study from uh, CU Boulder found that uh, Republican legislators public elected officials were more likely to share false information online. Um, I want to take a step back and talk a little bit about the weaponization of government. This is, uh, I think, a, a real example of projection, given how infamous Donald Trump was for using his office to punish perceived enemies. Uh, down in Florida, his main rival, Ron DeSantis, has gone to war with Disney for simply criticizing one of his policies. He's targeted a number of Florida professors for the same for criticism, and um, according to a judge, unconstitutionally removed an elected prosecutor from office over policy disagreements. And <clears throat> I always remind people that this weaponization narrative on the right began with what has become known as Spygate, 
Uh, and mm -hmm. that began yeah. with Trump claiming that Obama, the Obama administration was spying on his campaign, perhaps through the campaign's microwave ovens, right? And that, and that was uh, the subject of a lot of jokes on late night TV. And you had people who are now staunch uh, advocates of this weaponization of government narrative, people like Lindsey Graham and Devin Nunes, for example. They both said it was nonsense at the time. Here we are eight years later, and it's now kind of a matter of, of faith on the right that this is real. Uh, and everything from social media moderation policies to public health officials' uh, efforts to combat, combat like anti-vax stuff has been folded into this. And um, there's something called the illusionary truth effect that uh, researchers have looked at for a long time. It's a cognitive bias. And it's basically the, the sense that Something sounds true when it's repeated often enough. Uh, repeated messages are easier to process. And um, the brain kind of naturally mistakes familiarity with a message, you know, hear something again and again for truth. And um, there have been a lot of studies that have found that people rate repeated messages as more likely to be true, uh, even if they knew it was false at the beginning. Um, Anyway, I just need to make that kind of reality check. Jared, I'd like to shift gears here briefly. When Trump was arraigned in Miami, a lot of media figures warned of the potential for violence at the courthouse. I guess that was informed by January 6th when a lot of people missed those obvious warnings that, that something would happen. Um, and you were saying at the time that while you never know what some individual knucklehead might do, you thought organized violence was really unlikely, and you and a colleague, uh, Catherine Keneally, is it? Is that how mm -hmm. to pronounce it? Keneally wrote a paper titled "A Field Guide for Assessing Chances of Online to Offline Mobilization," which, by the way, listeners can check out at isdglobal.org. Can you give us a little summary of what led you to think that there was uh, little threat of organized violence, and also what would have worried you if you had seen it? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I guess first I'll just say it's hard for me to fault anybody for being vigilant. No, um, and, for sure. And the, and the fact is, like, a lot of people did sort of miss the ball of how severe January 6th was going to be. Um, I had the unique pleasure of seeing my emails in a Senate report, uh, <laughs> emails I sent to the FBI trying to say, hey, guys, uh, you know, there might be, might be a little bit of something here you want to look at. Um, but... You know, generally speaking, the reason I wasn't too worried about organized violence and, you know, with the caveat that there can always be things happening uh, offline that I'm not aware of as somebody who does most of his research online, um, is there were just kind of a lot of indicators that we weren't seeing. Um, you know, generally, before any sort of mass organized uh, violent action, and certainly before anything on the level of January 6th, or I think back to research I was doing before the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017, um, you know, you're not seeing this sort of combination of things that has to come together. There's sort of like a, a series of stars that have to align uh, for this to work out. You know, you, you've got to have the violent rhetoric, and not just the violent rhetoric, but, you know, an online community that's appearing in that is supportive of it. Uh, you know, that violent rhetoric has to reflect, you know, some sort of broader sentiment. 
uh, you want to see logistical conversations, Pe not people just saying we should rally, but people saying, I'm going to rally, or I just booked my hotel, I'll be there. I'm on the first flight tomorrow. Uh, you want to see buy-in from major nodes of influence. So, um, which I think was interesting because Trump was, you know, encouraging protests and it didn't seem to work out, but, you know, there wasn't sort of the same consensus that, you know, everybody needs to be there. Everybody, uh, you know, has to go. There's still a lot of fears in these online spaces about potential, you know, federal law enforcement infiltration and, you know, the possibility of being arrested. And they've watched nearly a thousand people since January 6th really get the brunt of it in, in the legal system. Uh, so, you know, there, there's those and like a whole host of, of issues that we've outlined in that explainer that we tend to look for before an event if we're trying to size up the potential for, you know, massive unrest or organized violence. And in that case, we just weren't able to take off many of our boxes. Um, you know, it, it, instead we were seeing something sort of more akin to what we saw uh, after the Mar-a-Lago raid, which was a lot of angry rhetoric online, but really kind of a failure to put it together into anything coherent. You know, um, you mentioned this very widespread belief that, you know, there are feds doing false flag uh, actions to try to um, kind of entrap conservatives. That was going around and people were warning, you know, don't show up or if you do show up, make sure you don't get sucked into any kind of violence. Again, the weaponization of government thing. And that was an area I think where a rare occurrence when these kinds of conspiracy theories actually have a, a beneficial effect in keeping these people from, you know, uh, committing acts of violence or mobilizing in, a, in an aggressive way. Jared, right. I, mean, I mean, in a sense... You know, the MAGA movement has spent so much time promoting these kind of conspiracy theories that it's kind of shot itself in the foot at getting any sort of like mass mobilization on the scale of the Stop the Steel movement or January 6th uh, from getting off the ground in the near future. It's not to say it can't happen again, but they've really kind of stacked the table against themselves there. Yeah. Jared, I believe we are about out of time. I really want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I am appreciative. Yeah, thanks for having me. Folks, we're going to take a quick break and then be right back with Parker Malloy. Stay tuned. When you were young and your heart was an open book You used to say live and let live You know you did, you know you did, you know you did But if this ever-changing world in which we live in Makes you give in and cry Say live and let die And we are back. You know, Live and Let Die was released 50 years ago this week. It was the first film starring the worst James Bond, Roger Moore. Some may say it was Timothy Dalton was the worst James Bond. But you know what? At least at least Timothy Dalton was capable of, like, running and punching like a normal person. <laughs> but uh, Live and Let Die was a good flick and had that great soundtrack. 
Anyway, I'm happy to welcome our final guest on this iteration of the podcast. Parker Malloy has been a semi-regular on the show, and we're grateful for her contributions. She writes a Substack newsletter, which I urge listeners to sign up for. It is called The Present Age. You can find that at readtpa.com or just Google it. Parker, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Who is your least favorite James Bond? Uh, you know, I, I honestly, my my least favorite James Bond is probably also Roger Moore because yeah. I, uh, I I think Timothy Dalton's good. Like I'm just seeing him in things other than James Bond. So yes. maybe maybe I'm giving him credit for that stuff. But he's he was in a couple of really bad James Bond films, which were not his fault necessarily. Yeah, you know, but you know he's he he adds a very timothy dalton yeah. uh aura to anything he touches so yes he I, does I'll, I'll put it that way yeah yes he yes he and people diss george lazenby who was just in that one movie i don't think that can even count he was really good he just made a very big mistake and he was like yeah this this character is going nowhere <laughs> this, this James Bond thing, I don't think so. I don't think it's going to catch on. That was uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is actually a really good James Bond film. But James Bond's uh, love interest, wife, I think, dies at the end of that film. So, like, it was just a weird thing. And then Roger Moore came in the next film. Anyway, um, let's talk about the media. And we spend a lot of time criticizing the media, I think with very good reason. And we're going to talk about how they cover Trump and uh, kind of right-wing extremism today. Before we do, though, I-, I want to get your take on something. Now, one often hears people saying that the political press has learned nothing in covering Trump. And I've said this myself. I've said they've learned nothing many, many times. But I'm not sure if it's actually true. It's For me, it's an expression of frustration over the fact that they haven't learned enough, that they continue to adhere to uh, journalistic norms that have been kind of rendered very problematic at a time when one of our two major parties has become a major conduit for disinformation. And we talked about that in the first segment. Um, Parker, I wonder if you think there have been at least some lessons learned in American newsrooms following eight years of covering Trump's bullshit. Any any bright spots in your view? You know, it's... uh bright spots man it's i think the one thing that's that's sort of changed for me over time is like i went from being like oh they're not learning anything to oh no they the people who are running these places fully understand what's happening they just don't care you know and that's like you know earlier uh earlier when i was uh on online i saw a, a tweet from cnn that uh it was a video of uh rfk jr doing his little workout thing outside in jeans. And uh, it had the caption, there's nothing junior about presidential candidate RFK Jr.'s pecs after his shirtless workout went viral. And I'm Jesus. just like, why? But on the other hand, I mean, they're, they're, you know, but you you take that stuff and then you can also look, look to like, you know, like Jake Tapper has, he wrote a piece for, for CNN.com that's really great about, RFK Jr. lying about things and his vaccine stuff. So it's it's a bit of a mixed bag, but I think that the one the one lesson that kind of has that they've 
that news outlets have learned has been to put things that people are going to dunk on and make fun of and mock and rage watch and rage read. And, you know, it's, it's all the same sort of mechanics in there where we're incentivizing people to upset others. You know, that is sort of what works now. And with all the, you know, and in doing so, we kind of ended up in this space where you can't really criti- you know, you can't really criticize anything now without it being framed as cancel culture. You know, right. you, you can, there, there can never be any negative consequences for anything anyone ever says in their work, in their professional or per- personal lives. Of course, if you say something in it and it makes people like you, that's fine. It can change in that way. It can change in that positive direction, but no, 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 you can't, no one can ever see their career take a hit for anything they they do being a terrible person yeah i mean it's really great if you're already at the very very top of things yeah Yeah. because yeah of course you don't want it to be where you you could potentially fall to the bottom you know you you want that but it's created kind of a i don't know it seems like our 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 politics generally are are a little more uh you know filled with sociopaths (laughs) yeah and your point about the incentives is really right on i mean you know, you look at, and I think Trump had a lot to do with this, right? I mean, we know that, um, we know for a fact that at least in terms of media companies, corporate management, that they, in fact, do like Trump for the drama and the ratings that he generates. Uh, former CNN chief Jeff Zucker is one of many or several executives who have said so very openly. So that's not really a mystery. I wonder to what degree that's, you know, you talk about incentives. Others, like you look at Marjorie Taylor Greene or Ron DeSantis, they seem to have picked up on this dynamic and they they know that just being offensive and terrible and and boorish Mm -hmm. gets them the attention that they seek and ultimately, you know, they raise money from that. Yeah, I I think part of it's that Trump won and then the the larger mainstream press kind of had to recalibrate and then go, okay, well, if Trump won, well, he's going to be the president. And if Trump does something and the president does something, then it's probably fine. You know, and that's that sort of thing where it's like, well, you can't say that the president can't say something or whatever. And there was this sort of sense of, you know, kind of just deferring to Trump and letting him rewrite what is acceptable in society, essentially, you know, with, you know, locker room talk and, you know, all that stuff that, if if you look at how people talked about like that sort of thing, like you had when the when the Access Hollywood uh, tape came came out, you had Tic Tacs, the the company, put out a statement that was just like we do not endorse this, you know, <laughs> like all of this sort of things where these companies would just like openly stand up and be like no, but then after Trump won, it was like well I guess we can't uh can't you know, can't criticize Trump for the Access Hollywood tape anymore because, hey, he won. Therefore, I guess that it's fine. You know, like that was sort of the attitude. Well, there's an and, appeal to popular opinion, too, because yeah. it's like, oh, well, he, you know, that didn't discourage voters. So who yeah. are we media elites to say that it's bad? Exactly. You know, when you're looking at coverage, the coverage of the Trump era, one thing that strikes me is that we had this kind of object lesson in how the mainstream press can push back on yeah. obvious bullshit when they choose to. We saw that and continue to see that. 
in their coverage of Trump's claims that the 2020 election was rigged. You had mainstream reporters routinely calling it the big lie, at least Mm -hmm. on social media, if not in their published reports. And, uh, you know, in those published reports, those claims are always, always referred to as baseless or some variation of baseless. It's very consistent. Let me ask you this. Why do you think that that was an exception to what we usually see, which is reporting that suggests there is validity to obvious propaganda? You know, just for example, we spoke in the first segment about the weaponization of government narrative, Mm -hmm. which includes non-governmental actors like social media companies. And I feel pretty confident that everyone who follows this stuff, maybe not typical viewers or whatever, or people partisan who are motivated to believe it for partisan reasons, like reporters and stuff, they know it's utter nonsense. Mm-hmm. And yet it's given the both sides treatment. Republicans say this, experts actually refute it. We report and you decide who's right. Why was that so different on, uh, with, uh, with the election bullshit? Sure. I, I think that part of it when it when it comes to the election stuff, you like you'll you'll really notice that it wasn't until like it wasn't until January sixth that they really started to to try to try to hammer like try to push that down. Like you had Mike Pompeo going around weeks after the election saying like he anticipates a smooth transition to a second Trump term. Like this was after they lost. And then you'd have, you know, NPR and the Associated Press just running headlines that are like Pompeo says he sees a smooth transition to a second Trump term. Like it was just, it it was this thing where it's like, you really don't have to do this. And I think part of it was just that like these organizations were, you know, they're really committed to just kind of accepting whatever, whatever the however things are however things go they just adapt and run with it had had trump's you know attempt to overturn the election worked out i imagine that uh that news outlets would have just justified it just been like yeah okay that's fine this that's the way it works that's the way the law goes you know just like that that supreme court case that was that was decided earlier in the uh in, in the week where it was, you know, that independent state legislature theory where it was basically, you know, hey, should states be able to ignore democracy in general, you know, and, and you had, what was it, it was six to three. Yeah. And, but had it gone the other way, it would have basically destroyed everything and there wouldn't have been anything we could have done about it. It would have set things up for elections to no longer matter at all, you know? You know, just so listeners who don't pay a lot of attention to Supreme Court stuff know, so this is Roy uh, Moore versus North Carolina, and it would have basically said that state constitutions and state Supreme Courts cannot uh, over override whatever election rules a state legislature passes. Mm-hmm. So they are, they are they can do whatever the hell they want, and there is nobody to stop them. That was the basic contention of the plaintiffs in that case. Yeah. And it was a bridge too far for even the extremists on this you know, Supreme Court. It really was a bridge too far. I was confident that they wouldn't go that far, but I was also prepared to be surprised because yeah. this court is really bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let me get back to the election thing briefly. Sure. So according to polls, most Republicans continue to believe that Biden wasn't legitimately elected, despite this 
consistent pushback. And CNN did a poll in March, which I thought had a really interesting result. So they found that 63% of Republicans thought Biden didn't win legitimately. Okay. Which, wow, 63%. But here's the interesting part. Of that 63%, only half said there was evidence that the election was rigged. And that was that had declined significantly since uh, just after the election. The other half said that they were going, and I quote, on suspicion only. What does this say about the utility of that kind of pushback from the press, given how siloed people are, mm-hmm. especially people who identify themselves as very conservative, because there are studies that show that they're the, the least likely to consume like a broad mm-hmm. media diet. And I should note that the public at large mostly doesn't buy the stop the steal stuff. So it's valuable in that sense. But if you know this 25% of the population or whatever mm-hmm. isn't going to be budged and is not even going to hear you in many cases, then why not do that kind of um, like ag- aggressive and consistent effort to correct the record with other uh, big lies? Yeah. It, you know, it would be really nice if, uh, if, uh, you know, with RFK Jr. again coming, bringing him back up, uh, it would be nice if if the the broader news media would would really shut down his whole thing, his whole I don't know, is the COVID vaccine safe? Who knows? You know, there's still this this reluctance to say, yeah, obviously it was safe, obviously it it was you know, it was fine. And the people who have all of these, these crazy conspiracy theories are absolutely wrong. They're batshit, you know, <laughs> they are just out of their minds. Yeah. And if you, you know, there, this is not up for discussion. People have not been dropping dead from getting the vaccine. Like all of the anti-vaxxers were saying, they were saying two years, you wait two years and you'll all be, there will be million, tens of millions of you dropping dead. And that just hasn't happened, you know, and but but they just can't it seems like a lot of places are reluctant to say this is a flat out lie this is not supported by any evidence the things that rfk junior is saying are entirely false he is misrepresenting yeah. studies he you know like there's a really aggressive way they could be doing this uh they could be pushing back on this you know the and they're just not they're not. It's it's a lot of well. He's you know he he says he has concerns. You know he he's he's not anti-vax. He's just a uh, you know he's he's for vaccine safety. Like no one no one ever adopts the the worst possible interpretation of of what you call them. Yeah. You know it'd be like someone who who you know is a serial killer. You know oh you're a serial killer. Well I'm not a serial killer. I'm a I'm a mass I'm a mass uh, manslaughter person you know like like just a weird like trying to like split hairs to get like a weird like look the media's lying to you i'm not i'm not anti-vax i'm just pro-vaccine safety i'm not anti-lgbt i'm pro-parents rights unless those parents are pro-lgbt in which case i am against that you know (laughs) like that that sort of stuff where it's just letting people completely write write their own narrative that gets repeated on news. And I think part of it comes down to the fact that, yeah, a lot of people do believe things that are provably false. And those are still people that, you know, new news outlets want to reach. 
And it's really difficult, I think. And I think a lot of organizations are having this problem where there where there are journalists who are trying to correct the record on these sorts of things, but it's just not getting out there. You know, as I as I pointed out with uh, you know, the RFK Jr. thing, it's like you had Jake Tapper writing this really great, great piece that that really broke down, you know, this this sort of thing that happened from interaction he had with RFK Jr. back when he was at ABC News in 2005. And then you have CNN on on social media being like, look at the hottie out there doing push-ups. You know, it's like, what the hell is any of this? You yeah. know, it's it's very, it's very frustrating. And I and I imagine that people working within those organizations who, you know, oftentimes cannot cannot publicly push back on this stuff or they'll get in trouble at work. Uh it's got to be very, very frustrating to them because they're not the ones who are, who are calling the shots. You know, the the people who are, who are making decisions are the ones like, you know, up until recently at CNN, you had Chris, Chris Licht, however his last name's pronounced, you know, you had him like there in that, that profile of him where he's, he's sitting there acting like he's the smartest guy in the room, putting his feet up and being like, well, maybe both sides have a point, you know, that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. it's, 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 it's just maddening. this, yeah, we're kind of in this era where, you know, I think, I think rich and influential people have always wanted to like, have always seen themselves as being smarter than everyone. And, and, you know, they have power for a reason. And now it seems like more of them, not only want power, but want to compel people to, to like them and to praise them. And, and you see that with, with Elon Musk, you know, that's a great example of it. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he wants, he desperately wants to be liked, even though he's a terrible, horrible human being. Uh, And we're recording this on his happy birthday or on his birthday. So happy birthday, you terrible human being, Elon Musk. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, you know, it's like, so you've got that, you've got Samuel Alito doing that thing where he's like, how dare you question my decisions at the court? You know, those, those sorts of things. And I think that the, the social media generally has, has connected us in, in these ways that are, that are great and terrible at the same time. And it used to be where guys like Elon Musk wouldn't hear from regular people. They would be billionaires and they would do their billionaire things and they would be evil and do their evil things, but they wouldn't get constant feedback from the public telling them, you know, that they're losers or whatever. And I think that part of it is you've got these really wealthy, rich, you know, uh, egotistical people who have, you know, this, this sort of need to be loved by people, but they don't want to change anything about themselves or their own positions on things. They take terrible, exclusionary, hateful positions. And they're like, why, why was, why doesn't the public love me? Well, yeah. I mean, Elon, you, you, you accuse You're anyone to, to yeah. your left as having a, having a mind virus, you yeah. know, <laughs> yeah. I mean that, that for one, that's, you're not going to win too many people over with that. But, I mean, look, yeah. narcissism, it's central to narcissism, insecurity, right? That's just baked yeah. in. That's just baked in. And you look at billionaires. I mean, narcissism is a big issue among among the billionaire class. Mark and Malloy, uh, get rid of them there. It's a policy failure. Unless Mark they want to give me money, in which case, <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it, but then I'll say, 
no more except for this guy. Except that for this is. one guy, my new patron. Yeah, yeah. Call, call, call me billionaires. Call me. You can be the one good one. I will defend you. We'll like you. We'll yeah. actually like. Yeah, you. yeah. If, if, you if, one, if if one day I just start speaking out in favor of one specific billionaire, we'll know. We'll know. We'll know what happens. So just, you know. Parker, I believe we are out of time, but I really appreciate you offering oh, your time. Thanks, thanks so much for having me. This is always always a good time. Thank you. We'll have you. We'll have you on the next iteration of the podcast. Yes, that, that sounds great. Very good. Thank you, Parker. I would also like to thank Jared Holt, and I'd like to thank David Edwards, our producer and engineer, who has been uh, great over the years of the show. I'd like to thank Raw Story and Alternate for supporting the show for four years, and I would like to thank all of you folks for tuning in. Have a good. Have a good rest of the year. By the way, if you want to drop me a line, um, you can do so at politicsandreality at gmail.com. Follow me on Mastodon, Blue Sky, and of course, I am still on Twitter, even though I'm dormant over there.